Mr. Wells. Is it all worth it? It is when it works. You know, the one film of mine where I had total control, Kane, the studio hated it, but they didn't get to touch a frame. Ed. Yes? Visions are worth fighting for. Why spend your life making someone else's dreams? W-A-L-T. It's the Midnight Disease. Sam Dingman coming to you on the Geffel M930 via the Avidas MA5, the Harrison 32 EQ, and the RNC 500 analog tones on a Wednesday night in the moon cabin, dangerously close to a literal midnight release of the Midnight Disease Let's see if I can get this thing together. Folks, on the show today, it is one of the most legendary podcasters of all time. No joke, no exaggeration. Alex Goldman is on the show today. Alex, of course, was one of the creators and co-hosts of Reply All. Before we get to it, I just want to say thank you to everybody who checked out the first ever Friday show of The Midnight Disease last week. If you missed it, uh, I talked a little bit about the conundrum in long-form narrative nonfiction of interviewing sources for radio stories and doing your best to honor the testimony and experience of those sources and crafting a story that uses their voices in the most mindful way you possibly can, and then never hearing from those people about the story that you've told, which is an incredibly bizarre uh, experience to have. And I talked about that in the Friday show last week and got some really nice responses from those of you who listened to it, so thank you for that. I've got another Friday show coming this Friday, and a reminder that if this is something you're interested in, I am releasing the Friday show uh, not just in audio here in the Midnight Disease feed, but also on video. So if you're interested in watching me talk and not just listening to me talk, you can find it on YouTube. There will be a link in the show notes uh, to get it. But uh, you can also just listen the same way you listen to uh, the Wednesday show, this show, uh, right here in the podcast feed. But thank you all for your indulgence of that new experiment, and I hope you enjoy this week's Friday show. And a reminder that, as always, you can reach me via email, midnight at walt.fm. All right, so Alex Goldman, on the off chance you are not familiar with Reply All, uh, I actually sort of don't believe that you're a podcast listener and you don't know what Reply All is. That's not a shot at anybody. That's just an expression of the ubiquity of Reply All at the height of its powers. Reply All was one of the first Gimlet shows, and it set the audio world on fire. It, almost from the time it came out, became the coolest show, the most fun show, the show that everybody seemed to have a relationship with. It was just... It was just an instant part of the podcast zeitgeist. Um, and on the, again, on the off chance you don't aren't familiar with the format, it, broadly speaking, was two hosts, Alex and his co-host PJ Vote, uh, and eventually lots of other uh, really talented people, um, doing stories that were notionally about the internet, but were actually just about what it's like to exist in a world that the internet has completely changed or warped would maybe be a better word forever. And that took the form of all of these consistently surprising audio experiments. Uh, there's one episode where PJ and Alex just walk out of the studio and move through the city having experiences with no narration. Um, it, it's like a 70s movie in a podcast. And 
I didn't ask Alex about this in the interview, but it almost felt like the entire episode was a comment on how much we have come to depend on things like podcasts to be a substitute for actual lived experience. And that's just one of the unbelievable stories they did. There's a very famous slash infamous episode where PJ microdoses LSD and, um, and we document the gradual in the office at Gimlet and we document the gradual effects of it. And the thing that I think is actually really important to understand and appreciate about all of this is though the show was very funny, hearing a show described that way, you might get sort of a morning zoo image in your mind. You might conjure an idea of these two wise guys kind of like taking the piss out of modern culture. (laughs) And that is not what Reply All was. It was consistently an earnest attempt to figure out the digital riddle. Um, And no matter how strange the people slash internet scam artists, internet scam artists are people too. That's basically the theme of the show. No matter how extreme the person that they were talking to was, um, they always met the people that they spoke to where they were. They always met these stories, even though the stories were often about the darker, stranger, weirder corners of digital life. They never treated them as something other. They treated them as something that could be understood if only their curiosity was pursued to its logical conclusion. And they became legends in the process. And the end of Reply All is is something that legions of people mourn. You can find threads on Reddit of people just pining for this show. Um, that's how important this show was to people. They miss it. They feel its absence in their lives. Um, it didn't end the way some podcasts do because it got to the end of a story. It, it came to a point where it wasn't feasible for them to make it anymore. And a chapter of narrative audio storytelling ended when Reply All ended. And... That's one of the reasons I was really interested to talk to Alex, because he is in the process of deciding what his next chapter will be. And I was really curious to uh, get some insight into how this person who, for many people, is podcasting, like, is one of the people who defined the voice of what a podcast story is and can be, what does he think the next step in podcasting should be. We also talked about a bunch of other things, including, and this doesn't come until the very end, but I think it's important to tell you about here up front. We talked about this this piece that he did actually before Reply All even existed. It's an episode of 99% Invisible called Hey Yoon. I'll put a link to it in the show notes for this episode. And it's one of my favorite audio documentaries ever. It's a story about this piece of art, sculpture, public slash also kind of private space that Alex found when he was a teenager and that became a part of his identity. It became this space to retreat to, this space to find community and... uh, presence in his true self at a time when it was hard for him to do that in other places. And then over the years, he realized that other people felt differently about this space and that he didn't own that sensibility. Uh, And he didn't more concretely own this place, which was called Heyoon. And it's a really powerful reflection on how much something that you don't own and that nobody can really own can mean to you and what it's like to to realize that you might have to let that go. And I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say that there are some parallels there with the way that Alex thinks about the storytelling that he got to be a part of and got to lead 
and innovate with at Reply All and how he is now feeling about the attempt to recapture that or do whatever the next thing after that is. Um, And so I felt like I I had an opportunity to talk to him at a really interesting point in his life as a storyteller. Um, I also want to let you know that though at the time we spoke, uh, he was still pondering what his next audio project would be. You can hear Alex currently on a podcast called Western Kabuki, uh, where they just did a really amazing interview with Brian Krasenstein. If you know, you know. Um, So definitely check that out. Uh, If you want to hear that signature Alex Goldman sound on the mic, he's still got it, folks. He's still got it. Um, And uh, Western Kabuki is is not similar to Reply All in format, but you can still hear the Alex Goldman-ness shining through. And he's also doing a substack called The Cool Dude Zone, which I am a reader of and where uh, you can find the exact kind of idiosyncratic uh, hyper-specific reporting about things that you would never imagine matter, but that turn out to really matter a lot, uh, except it's in written form instead of in sound on the Substack. Um, so definitely check that out for your your dose of that type of Alex Goldman storytelling while he ponders his next move. And you can also listen to uh, Slow Fawns, which is the music that he makes with his synthesizers. And we attempted to synthesize all of these threads in the conversation you are about to hear on WALT. If I were to just take a stab in the dark at what the midnight disease would be for me, it is the... um being like 99% finished with a story and then um, at midnight fucking it all up to put it back. Yes. Uh, uh, (laughs) (laughs) So, so what, can you give me an example of like the kind of impulse that would come to you in this moment where you're like, that's the thing it needs that ends up derailing the whole thing. There's a phrase that we used a lot at reply all, which is I can't hear the story anymore, which is like, Mm. you've listened to it enough that you can no longer really tell if it's good or not. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've done so much editing, fine editing, like down to the word, that it's like impossible to tell what's good anymore. And so yeah. sometimes, and I generally think it's the wrong impulse, but it is an impulse that I followed in the past. You're like, the finish line is in sight, and then you go, oh, wait a minute, this needs like three more paragraphs, <laughs> or this, we need to move something in a significant way that will add two hours to the process. Yeah. Um, just like a significant change at the last minute. Yes. This is referencing something that I have been really excited to talk to you about, which is, you know, by reputation in the biz, Reply All was this all-consuming creative process. You would hear there was like a lore associated with Reply All about how the kind of the totality of what it took to get one of those episodes finished, how much you guys were always working right up until the last minute. How many parts of the process, like you as as host, were were touching and and involved with because you cared so much? Um, how true are those rumors? Like, was it really the case that it was this kind of wall to wall push uh, to get every episode out? Yeah, I mean, it was true. It was, and I I don't necessarily think that that was. Like, I don't think that was necessarily like the way to do it. I'm not, I don't, Mm -hmm. I would never, I would never tell anybody to work the way that we did on that show because I mean, Mm -hmm. it burnt everybody out. One of the reasons that I have not gone back to making a show yet is because the prospect of doing something again at that clip is overwhelming. But yeah, I mean, the process was, the host was reporting, the producer was reporting, the editor was involved the whole way through and we would do edits that lasted anywhere between like 90 minutes and eight hours i mean yeah. we we had we had edits that were like obscene and as a person who has terrible attention deficit disorder that was really bad like it was really bad for me uh, <laughs> so 
I mean, one of the things that we were always doing and always failing at was trying to streamline our process. Every week we would be like, okay, well, here's what we, we would have like a debrief where we'd be like, here's what we learned from working, making this episode. Here's what we can apply to future episodes. This will make things mm-hmm. easier. But nothing ever made anything easier because mm-hmm. if we could make something 1% better, even if it took 20% more work, we would do it. Yeah. And I would say the thing that I realized in hindsight is that would actually show up in the finished product a quarter or a third of the time. Like you wouldn't like uh-huh, in the end, uh-huh. that amount of work wasn't necessarily worth it. Do you have a sense for yourself with the benefit of hindsight? What was behind that agreed upon? It sounds like impulse that it was always worth this ultimately unnecessary 20%. Like what do you feel like, how were you able to convince yourself that it was worth another 4 a.m. night, that it was worth another mad dash to the finish line. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) How did we convince ourselves of that? I mean, shared psychosis. I do Uh think that there are other shows that exist that way. I feel like This American Life was like that for decades. Like they, Mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. they worked like that for a long time where everybody was pulling 60 hour weeks. Mm -hmm. Um, I can only speak for myself, but for me, it was like I was the person whose name and voice was on the show to a degree that very few others were except PJ and later Emmanuel. And it made me not want to settle. There's a, there's a real fear about putting things into the world and how people are going to react to it. Um, And I think it takes a certain amount of narcissism to want to be on the radio in the first place. (laughs) So, you know, that narcissism showed up in the editing process for us uh, for better or worse. Did you ever have at the end of one of those nights, was there ever at least an, an attendant feeling of like accomplishment, like waking up the next day, knowing that the thing was however much hell you'd had to go through to get it out? Did you get to experience ever a sense of euphoria when one of your stories, I mean, you guys had so many stories that blew up huge. Did you ever, did you get to feel that or were you always so on to the anticipated hell of the next story that... Uh, you didn't. I mean, the thing is that, like, I am a person who has no internal self-soothing monologue. Like, I can't, <laughs> I'm not able to be like, okay, well, look, this is fine. It's going to come out. It's going to be good. Um, yeah. You worked really hard on this. Like, you feel really good about the reporting. Um, it was much more like, what are people saying about it on Twitter? And if they liked it, I was like, mm-hmm. oh, thank God. And if they didn't like it, I was like, oh, I'm a failure. I'm just the worst. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you found your your self-soothing monologue externally, like through tweets. Well, it wasn't self-soothing. It was just uh, <laughs> seeking validation from other people, which is yeah. like a very yeah. unhealthy impulse, I think. Um, yeah. And it's yeah. a much, it's like much easier as a person who's been a producer and is a producing a show now again, it's a lot easier to not, to like feel a little more like, well, you know, we'll, we'll get it right the next time when, yeah. when it's not me talking. Right. Right. This is someone else's dream job. This mm-hmm. is not my my dream thing. Yeah. So all of this is is also making me want to uh, jump way back, if I may, to um, I know you studied journalism in college, right? Yeah. Do you have a, a memory for yourself about what the original pull towards journalism was like? What <laughs> what was it about? Yes. Um, I wanted to be like the next Lester Banks. I wanted to do like rock and roll criticism. This was, I'm old. So this was like before Pitchfork really hit. This was like, I like went to college in 2001. I feel like Pitchfork sort of came around right as I was leaving school. And I was just like, I'm going to be like a great cultural critic. And then I actually got into school and started reading cultural critics. And I was like, I I can't do this. Uh, This is not, (laughs) my brain's not designed this way. I don't, I don't have like these incredible insights into uh, into the the nature of art and criticism and so on and so forth. Like I'm not Pauline Kale, um, but that I, I also started listening to radio about that time. Like you know, uh, This American Life and on the media and things like that. So that was that was sort of how I made that switch. But that switch was like it took a long time for me to actually make that switch. Like I spent a few years just bumming around and doing odd jobs. I spent a few years doing tech support, and then I finally made the leap and got a job. Uh, at WNYC. Yeah. Well, before we before we get to that, I would, something I'm really interested in about this moment of your, your Lester Bangs fantasy is there's kind of a gap, right? Between, like Lester Bangs 
there was what he said, but there was also he was a personality. He was like a, a, a known quantity in the world. And to me, there's a difference between a pull towards having that kind of identity in the world and a pull towards telling stories in the This American Life style or the radio journalism style more broadly, because generally speaking, I know this is not ultimately what happened for you with Reply All, but generally speaking with radio storytelling, the idea is you as a as a presence sort of disappear into the story. Um, and something I find really interesting about, you know, what I would think of as the Alex Goldman style is it is as much about you as it is about the subject upon which you are reporting. And you you manage that balance so so deftly. So I guess, would you agree that that, that was a switch for you or, or do they not feel so different? I mean, you know, as a producer, it feels very different. But like mm-hmm. once we started doing Reply All, like I always just wrote from my perspective. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, it was made a lot easier by being able to essentially you know tell stories we would tell stories in conversation with one another and mm-hmm. um that allowed for digressions and asides and because we knew each other we were able to sort of insert parts of our lives in it and um mm-hmm. i wouldn't say it was organic because it mm-hmm. if you listen mm-hmm. to the first 20 episodes or so we don't do it very much it was tim howard who really was like why aren't you guys talking to each other on the show it doesn't make mm-hmm. any sense like it's just mm-hmm. it's so natural that you should be talking to each other and that really <laughs> was sort of like the magic of the show, I think. But once you get that, I think that part of the thing that we did well was making a show where we would take things that could not be less significant and imbue them with significance. And it was sometimes very hard to do that without inserting yourself into the story. And so I think part of it was just like, giving ourselves permission to put ourselves in the story and um, also gave it some movement because we could talk about our journey of reporting the story. I mean, that was like a big part of the show. It wasn't like we were telling the narrative of a person who starts someplace and ends someplace else. It was like we were telling the story of a person who, of a journalist who has a question and goes on a journey to answer it. Yes. Yes. I mean, if I may, I think you're, you're identifying what for me at least was the secret sauce of my enjoyment of my favorite reply all episodes was you were enacting a sense that i as a you know normal person just listening have all the time but don't always follow which is i am really fixated on this thing that to an ex- outside eye seems insignificant and what's interesting about it isn't the thing it's my obsessive pursuit to an answer about the thing that like that's what's interesting and I feel like what you guys identified was how to make that obsession interesting by kind of being able to like point at each other's obsession with the the eyes and ears of of a notional listener. I mean, I I have attention deficit disorder, which I I think is known for having a hyperfixation component to it. And I don't know if that's true or not, but that's been a thing that's always been the case for me. I remember when I was Mm -hmm. very young, before the the Tim Burton movie, I was like really fixated on Ed Wood, the director. Yeah. Uh, Cause I was just like, I was like, this guy's so passionate about these things and yet they still uh-huh. come out so terrible. And like his life is so <laughs> weird. And like, he was a cross dresser and he made porn when he was older and he died in poverty as an alcoholic. Like there's such a journey for this guy. Like I was really fascinated by that. Then I've yeah. always, there's always been stuff like that in my life and it continues. I just was lucky enough for a time to like make it my career to hyper fixate on things that I liked or was interested in and be able to figure them out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so something else that's interesting to me about this is I've been reading and really loving the cool dude zone. You're a sub stack. Oh, thank you. And in addition to the actual subject matter that you're writing about, I'm also interested in it just as like a fan of the Alex Goldman artistic journalistic presence in the world because what's interesting to me is there was an alex goldman character on reply all which i know Mm -hmm. is probably not exactly you in real life not exactly um but it occurred to me in reading the cool dude zone that the version of you that i recognize in the show is a version of you that emerged through conversation as you said organically conversations with pj or emmanuel or other folks on the team it was not a scripted 
self-generated version of you. And on the cool dude zone, unless you're generating it differently than I assume, I imagine you're just sitting down and writing That's from right. yeah. yourself. So how much of the version of yourself that appears on the page is informed by the Alex Goldman character that developed and how much of it is something new, some new impulse that you're following? Oh, geez, I really don't think about the character of Alex Goldman, which, I've, I've, okay, that's not true. Like, I mean, <laughs> I mean, for better or worse, that there's like a, there, I exist in public and there is a version yeah. of me that I try and put forward. But also, like, I think that that, character is kind of fluid like i'm a very different person on twitter than i am on mm -hmm, reply mm -hmm. all and i think i'm sort of a different person yeah. in my writing than i am on twitter like it's just uh i don't know that's a great question i mean i feel like there was like a sort of curmudgeonliness and antagonism that existed in me on reply all which was sort of related to my relationship with pj sure. um and i feel like that doesn't present as much in my writing. However, I find Twitter to be absolutely terrible for my mental health and to make me mad all the time. So uh -huh. yeah, I think it presents way more <laughs> on Twitter. So it's really just sort of like, they're all facets of the same guy. They're just uh, not exactly the same guy. So I guess what that makes me wonder is, you know, you said at the beginning that one of the reasons you have not gone back to podcasting in quite the same way is because of the all-consuming nature of the Reply All production. But it, it strikes me that this is a repeat, if I think of my imagined timeline of your life, of an earlier moment where you did radio in college, as you mentioned, mm -hmm. and then you were away from it for a while and something called you back. And now you've been away from Reply All for a minute. And from what I gather from some of the stuff you've written, whether on Twitter or on the Cool Dude Zone, you you feel some kind of pull back towards radio and podcasting, it seems, but it doesn't like have a shape yet. Um, is that is that a fair characterization? I'd say that's right. I think it's more like I've had some ideas and mm -hmm. I feel like the industry is not in a place where they're super interested in my ideas. I feel like um, <laughs> I feel like like long form narrative podcasting right now is really not something people are a big fan of they're not super interested yeah um, yeah which is yeah. really disheartening for everybody who got into radio because they loved cereal and things like that the safe bet that people are making right now is if we get a celebrity to do a show we know x amount of people will show up and they yeah. can just check at least for the first episode <laughs> right 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 so there's like a there is a real tepidness toward doing things that either might be a limited series or require a huge amount of reporting. Um, I've gotten a lot of offers to make things that are just like chat shows, but I don't think that people want to listen to me chat. I mean, they might find me charming, but I don't think that's not like what, how I cut my teeth or like what I think people come sure. to listen to me for. They might show up for yeah. the first episode, like you said. Right. I don't think that's also that's the bet I've made in in having you on this show <laughs> for what it's worth. Uh oh, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> No, but I, I, I hear what you're saying. I guess I guess what I'm maybe kind of getting at is, like, if you think back to doing college radio, what made you want to go to the radio state? Because you had a music show, right? Yes. And I assume that music show was not long-form storytelling, right? No. Were you just DJing and playing songs? Yeah. Um, what was the pull to do that? Like, what was it, what made you want to go have a, a music show? There was a, I grew up in Ann Arbor, Michigan. There was a local, mm -hmm. local, the college radio station there was called WCBN. It was Freeform Radio Station. And mm -hmm. I cut my teeth musically on so much of what I heard on that station. Like, you know, when it's a Freeform Radio Station and as college students, they would do stuff like, okay, now we're going to play this entire album. Uh, mm -hmm. or, or I remember when the students came back every year for many years. They used to do a student exorcism where they would have like a, <laughs> they would have like a tape loop of someone saying leave over and over again. And like, uh -huh. I just found that like the idea of being able to sort of play whatever I want, really exciting. Now, when I got to my college station, it was not freeform. They had like the rock segment and the blah, blah segment, but my show was right, on it right. from like nine to midnight. No, none of the bosses were listening. I just played whatever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, so when you 
like if you can remember, like when you would sit down or, or go in on those nights to do your show, this is going to sound like an overly simplistic question probably, but like, did you feel more excited about the part where you were talking into the microphone or did you feel more excited about the idea of curating a listening experience? I mean, it was a bit of both. It was just like, it's the same thing that I feel and it's a, it's of a piece with reporting. It's like, mm. if I hear something really exciting, the idea of being able to share it with people is like equally exciting to me, even though I, you know, I can't mm -hmm. imagine how many people in the Pioneer Valley were listening to WF, WMUA at, uh, <laughs> at 11 p.m. on a Wednesday night or whatever. It was probably, sure. you know, it was probably 100 people. But it was it's like those 100 people, like I had their ears. I got to decide mm -hmm. what they listened to. That was really a thrill to me. Um, but being able also, as a person who like, again, hyper fixates, I then get to say like, oh, this band is from so-and-so and they did this and they did that. Here are all the interesting things about them. One of their members was found dead in a hotel room after like not being heard from for a month. Like, you know, you get to, you, you still get to tell stories um, and you still get to share something that you're really fascinated about with people and sort of like carve out a little bit more of the world for people to see. So like, I think that it's the same impulse as wanting to report. That's fascinating. I don't think I've ever heard anybody. It is a running motif on this show that whenever I find out somebody did college radio, I want to ask them a billion questions about it. You know, people who end up working in sound, it, it's like where the, the a lot of these impulses are incubated. And I don't think I've ever heard anybody say that the idea of hosting a show that's a combination of talk and music is the same impulse as reporting. Um, but I totally get what you're saying, that it comes from a place of like, I want to share this with you because I'm excited about it. Yeah, totally. I mean, I, I just uh, that was a thing that was like pure joy for me and no stress. Like I just got to go in there and mm. it was like I was in control and I got to do what I wanted and no one was telling me how to do it. I didn't have to yeah. worry about being edited. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. So this idea of like, I want to share this thing that feels significant to me in light of um Something I, I read that you wrote on Twitter, I think earlier this year, where you, you talked about having this, quote, uncanny ability to overshare and embarrass yourself. And you, and you, in fact, called this your greatest strength. Do you remember when you started to come into an awareness of that as like kind of a superpower for you? Was that anywhere in your mind in the college radio days or did that come later? I mean, I think it came later. I think it came with reporting. It was more just like... It was more a thing where if we were going to do something for Reply All, if there was something we wanted to do for the show, I was like always the one who was like, yeah, I'll do it. In fact, originally, you know, there's the episode where PJ microdoses. Yes. That started out as an episode where I was just going to take acid and he was going to record it. It wasn't going to be microdosing. <laughs> it was going to be macrodosing. And it was going to be me just being blitzed out of my mind and him recording it. And I can't remember yeah. how we justified that. Like, I can't remember the justification for that. Uh -huh. I think it was like we were talking about Tripsit, the subreddit. Yeah. And I was like, you should Tripsit me. But then, right. you know, I talked to my wife and she was like, I'd really rather you didn't do that. <laughs> We have a child. Let's let's go yeah. ahead and, and not do this, please. So please A, don't do this and B, don't record it and put it on a podcast. <laughs> Man, I, I I it's not something that I would ever do, but I've always thought like if I ran for office, the opposition research would be nuts. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I feel like you'd sort of be insulated, right? Like uh in like the same way that Eminem is insulated at the end of eight mile by rapping about all of his flaws. But yeah, but like yeah. I don't think that that's how you win a presidential debate in the same way. That's how you win a freestyle. <laughs> true. Although these days, presidential debates are basically freestyles. So, I guess you that's know. true. Plenty more to come with Alex Goldman on The Midnight Disease. We'll be back after a short break. You're listening to WALT. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. 
Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you started doing Reply All at Gimlet, did you think of that as doing radio or did you think of that as podcasting? I always call it radio. I don't think of them as being particularly separate. Um, And I I don't think that they need to be. Um, I think that that's like a, I mean, I get the the sort of like business and financial distinction between the two, but I don't, I don't think that we were doing, aside from the swearing, I don't think there was anything we were doing that couldn't have been on public radio or shouldn't have been on public radio. Um, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I do think that if I was playing a character, the character I was playing is like a, an interested doofus who like will go and sort of like, and uncritically sort of dive into anything. But I don't think that that's, and I think that's a little less reserved than like the average public radio, like that has less remove than the average public radio show. But beyond that, like I think of them as being very similar and the DNA of our show is all this American life, radio lab, 99% visible, everything that came before us. Like we are definitely standing on the shoulders of giants. The only difference is like, you know, we swore more (laughs) and I was willing to put myself in in more physical and emotional danger, I think. Yeah. Well, as we're talking about this, it's making me think about your Storming the Castle episode where you get on the line with your favorite prank caller. Right. Um, And I feel like my experience of listening to that episode was... I felt like I was driving late at night. I mean, it's interesting to me that you said, like, Reply All did things that might as well be on public radio. Because I sort of associate Reply All with more of a, like, late night FM station somewhere in the middle of America where you happen to, like, find your way to this studio where two people with these wild fixations are exploring the outer limits of where those things can take them. And... On that show, on that episode of Reply All, you get on the line with this prank caller guy and he's got his like wild soundboard modulating his voice um, and you're talking to him in this very reasonable tone and he is clearly like trying to not be sincere, but by just being earnest with him, you find this sincerity with him. It's nuts to listen to. And I know that it's edited because I know how podcasting works, but it was still surprising to me in the same way. I feel like the most genuine and exciting moments in any radio story, whether it's Brian Lehrer taking a call on WNYC or it's, mm-hmm. you know, Ira Glass or Sean Cole doing a story for This American Life is when the people they're talking to say something that they don't expect. It like really puts mm-hmm. them on and, and you hear that moment in tape. Like it's not yeah. just like then they cut to narrative and they're like, I didn't expect to hear that. But like if you hear those moments, those are the moments that I'm always like, Oh, that feels like real reporting to me because real reporting to me feels like a person who is challenging their assumptions as opposed to someone who's trying to sort of reaffirm them. Yeah. And and you're making me think that maybe the the real secret sauce of finding the link between radio and podcasting is knowing editorially to leave that moment of surprise in without making it feel artificially inserted. There were times when I would say that that was like a big argument a lot of times is like, Mm -hmm, should we leave mm -hmm. this, should we leave this moment of surprise in or should we not? Does it feel artificial? Does it feel forced? Does it feel motivated? Because sometimes Mm -hmm. we would be, because one of the things about one of the ways that I am not myself when I'm behind a microphone is that to get people loosened up and engaged, sometimes you have to overdo it a little bit. Sometimes you have to respond to them and be like, get out of town, you know? (laughs) And sometimes it sounds a little fake. Can't, can't, you can't stick the landing on that every time. So yeah, yeah, I mean, yes, 
mm-hmm. I do think that. I do think that like the wisdom to keep that in and like the those moments of discovery. If you talk about, you know, being an audience surrogate uh, in a story, like the idea of the person who, of me being sort of the person in the story who is experiencing it on behalf of the listener, um, being able to make those feel natural is like, it's really the, the secret sauce, I think, in a, yeah. to making a, a story feel dynamic. Yeah. Do you think there's a relationship then between kind of where we started talking about if if you have this innate knowledge that your own curiosity and presence and desire to be surprised and your responsibility to be a surrogate for the listener and that that has to be really foregrounded in the storytelling do you think there's a connection between that and the kind of obsessive style of working that became common on that show because I mean, if you think about it, that's an incredibly high bar and nuanced concept to try to communicate in sound. I don't know. Do you see a relationship between those things? Yeah, I do. I mean, you know, like we always, the stories that were always successful were the ones that had moments of epiphany, that had like moments of epiphany and moments of surprise, the funny stories that had sad parts, the sad stories that had funny parts. And that's like, I don't want to make it sound like we were making things up because that's not the case, but there is a way as a journalist that you can manufacture those moments, but Mm -hmm. it's really Mm -hmm. fucking hard. (laughs) Takes a lot of work. And when I say manufacture, I mean like the way that you deploy tape, the way that you write, Mm -hmm. the way Mm -hmm. that you... Um, conduct interviews, all of those things contribute to the surprise the listener gets and the emotions the listener feels. And like being conscious of all that stuff during the entire process is exhausting and agonizing and takes a ton mm-hmm. of fucking work. And yeah. sometimes it pays off. And, mm-hmm. But the, the cost of that was that we were working all the time. And yeah. That ended up not always being great. Like we were not always building in extra good stuff in those moments that were yeah. like, that we're like, okay, we're right up against the wall. We have four hours before this episode has to get out. Should we make a significant change or should we let this go? So I'm going to go ahead and assume as, as you're having these stirrings inside of yourself to want to get back to podcasting or back to radio, I assume it is not those kind of nights, those kind of deadlines that you miss. What do you, what do you miss? What do you miss about making a, making a show? I miss being able to satisfyingly answer a question. I miss being mm-hmm. able to talk to the person at the center of a thing and have it satisfy a question I had. My fixations haven't stopped. Like they haven't gone away. Yeah. A thing I've been obsessed with lately, and this is like my own personal obsession and it hasn't existed. I think it's on my Twitter feed and that's it. Is um the opening of the TV show Beef, the Netflix TV show Beef. Okay. Um, the title card for that has this like big horn stab and it sounds exactly like the sample that begins the song Genesis by the dance band, like the dance music artist justice. Uh-huh. And I have been trying to figure out where the sample comes from and whether they're the same sample. And I've talked to the representatives for the composer and they insist it isn't, but I've talked to like sound engineers and they insist it is. And like, yeah. I'm really convinced that it's the same song, but, <laughs> but, and I'm like, well, why wouldn't he admit to it? And it's the guy who did it is, I think the guy who did the music for hereditary and midsummer, like he's a big composer. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. the only thing I can think of is like, maybe he didn't clear the sample. And supposedly the sample is from a Godzilla movie, but I can't find the, the sample. Like I've, mm-hmm. I've been working on this for months. I've been calling people this and this is not for anything. Like there's no, there's no outlet that's like dying to get the, where's the sample from story from me. Um, which is part of the reason that no one's responding to me. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right, right. But, uh, but if nothing else, if you could have an outlet that, uh, Give, gets you that response that that's a reason enough to go back to i mean podcasting. kind of i did these questions pop up in my life all the time and again that's like a that's like a question that is so small but mm-hmm. is illustrative of like the best reply all stories that are small questions speak to a bigger question and the bigger mm-hmm. question in this is like sample credits are nuts 
Like the, yeah. the, the way yeah. that samples get cleared is nuts. The way that people hide samples and music is nuts. The fact that De La Soul couldn't put their albums on streaming for all of streaming's history is be- because they couldn't clear mm-hmm. their samples is nuts. Like mm-hmm. there's all of this amazing backstory to the question of whether this horn stab is from a Godzilla soundtrack and whether it's the same one from the Justice song. Yeah. Those kinds of questions that just like illustrate a tiny bit of our world mm-hmm. are the thing that I miss the most. And like, I would love to go back to doing. So something that I am very late to the party on is like the new journalism, as it is often called your Tom Wolfs, your Joan Didion's, uh, your gate to leases. <clears throat> this is a style of writing that I have discovered somewhat recently. And I'm like, this was just out here the whole time. Like, this is amazing. <laughs> but a question that has been formulating my in my mind as I read that and as I think about the landscape of podcasting as we've been discussing is like, do we need a new podcasting? Um, do we need some kind of fundamental shift in what it means uh, to make a podcast? And I had planned to put that question to you, but to me what you're saying is that you want to continue to follow the same impulses that you have always followed. Uh, it's not that you want to like radically reimagine the format. You just lament the fact that there is a disinclination to invest in what it takes to do that same work. I mean, I mean, I mean, I'm too old to come up with like a way to do. I'm 44. <laughs> I can't come up with a new way to to do a new, to do a podcast. Like what? Yeah. Also, I feel like a lot of a lot of different formats of podcast have been explored and there are some that i think are really wonderful and are i think undermined like that the, the, mm-hmm. the it's a like a rich vein that hasn't been mined there's like a lot of there's like a, a podcast that i have let me see what it's called give me just a second here uh yeah. desert oracle radio and it's just some guy out in the desert who does this like weird stream of consciousness and i think that there's like a world where there are more of those that are amazing Mm-hmm. Maybe they're out there and I haven't heard them, but mm-hmm. um, I'm also not the person to do them. Like I know my lane and I know what I'm good at <laughs> Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I feel like that's what I want to do. And right now the thing I want to do, there's like not a lot of people pushing toward it. But like, I mean, you know, what, what kind of radical redefinition does podcast, I'm like putting the question to you, what, what kind of radical re- redefinition does the podcasting universe need right now? Like what, what, what do you, where do you see expanding it i i am was hoping you would be able to tell me honestly i i don't know if i i could answer it but i do feel like in my mind the correct framework for podcasting in terms of what people like about it and why they're drawn to what they're drawn to i have always felt like corporate podcasting assumes that the correct ladder up from podcasting is movies and tv And I don't think that's right. I think the correct analog for why people love certain podcasts is the reason people love certain bands. The reason people love certain kinds of music is they love the way it makes them feel. There's something about the sound of it that really connects with them. I think that's what accounts for the fact that, um, you know, some people love listening to shows that are recorded on garbage equipment and you can barely understand what's happening. And for people who love them, they don't care about that. It's something an animating spirit behind the show, whether the show is long form investigation or, uh, you know, chopping it up about true crime stories or comedians who've never seen Star Trek talking about Star Trek. Like to me, that, that is, that's the only framework I've been able to come up with that allows all these things to make sense together. I don't know how you corporatize that. I don't know how you turn that into business, but that's the way I prefer to think about podcasts is more like bands that people love rather rather than i mean tv shows if you look at i mean this is like kind of this is an object lesson that has taken place in all media it's like Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. someone comes along and does something that is a passion project and it's successful Mm -hmm. and then people see dollar signs and try and recreate that thing sometimes it hits most of the time it doesn't if you look at Gimlet's slate of podcasts, the ones that were successful were people who came in with, from outside of Gimlet with ideas yep. and mm-hmm. were given the time and money to make those ideas. 
It was mm-hmm. like Crime Town, Heavyweight, Science Versus, Reply All, uh, Mystery Show. Those were all shows. Reply All existed in a form before Gimlet. Yeah. So did mm-hmm. Mystery Show. Heavyweight mm-hmm. is just sort of like a spin on what Jonathan Goldstein had been doing before. Um, yep. Like there were all of these, all of these existed in some form before. And I really do believe that like, if people are passionate about making something, it generally lends itself to success way more than if it's being manufactured by people who are trying to corporatize something, which yeah. is unfortunate for the pe- for the people who hold the purse strings. Um, yeah. And in some ways, unfortunate for the people who are trying to make stuff because it is now resulted in a landscape where it's harder, harder for people to do it. But yeah. I mean, another reason that like, I haven't gone back to make something yet is because reply all was a passion project and nothing has shown up to fill that void for me. Like, I don't have a thing where I'm like, I pointedly want to do this thing in that vein. Can I ask you about slow fawns? Sure. Um, how, what, what itch does slow fawn scratch that radio doesn't. And like if somebody was to come along, say, and say, like, you know what? You never have to make another radio show again. Here's a gazillion dollar record contract. Just do slow fawns forever. Would that be enough or would you still need radio to fill the, the void? I don't know. I would need something other than that. What needs does it fill? I mean, I've always been a musician. I'm like a person who uh, compulsively plays guitar while I watch TV, um, which is really hmm. annoying to everyone I watch TV with. Uh, it's, it's really annoying to everyone I watch TV with. Uh, so I generally, I, I mean, I just, I just like playing music and always have, and I've always been a person who writes songs. Um, Mm -hmm. I would say that it's like a, just another compulsion. It's like another fixation. Mm -hmm. It's like a Mm -hmm. thing that I've always felt like I had to do. Yeah. But if I'm hearing you right, there's, there's something about playing music that doesn't answer a question in the way that reporting and and storytelling does no it's i feel like it's more like um it's more like getting an itch scratched than it is Uh than it Uh is like i feel like playing music is relaxing but i feel like making radio or like journalism is like nourishing if that makes sense that makes absolute sense it makes absolute sense and it it makes me want to ask you know I asked you kind of at the beginning of this, like, did you have any kind of feeling of euphoria or satisfaction after you guys would get an episode finished? And maybe a a sub-question of that or a, a slightly different version of the same question is when you would get one of these questions answered, like when you pursue this, you know, call center scheme all the way to India and you you get some resolution for this this thing that has just like that you've been fixated on did you get any did you have any kind of physical sensation when you would get that question answered whether it was euphoria or something else like did you get to enjoy that was there some sense of enjoyment from from that part of the process yeah oh yeah i mean i mean being able to like the satisfaction that came from people liking the stories I think was probably equal to the satisfaction of being like, Oh, I've got my answer like that. The moment when you got your answer was always, unless it was a really boring answer was, was always really good. Yeah. Yeah. What does it feel like when a new question starts to formulate? Like when you feel yourself starting to fixate, how do you, how do you experience that? Is it like, like how does it manifest itself? It manifests itself in me, like getting lost in what I'm doing for, several hours and then coming back and being like, Oh, okay, well now I know everything there is to know about, you know, hydraulics. <laughs> <Whatever. laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I know we've just got a couple minutes left here and, uh, I appreciate you taking this time so much. Of course. Um, if I could, I just wanted to ask you like very briefly about Hayun which I know is um, something that at this point is, what, like 10 years old? Yeah, 10 or 11. Yeah. I re-listened to it before we were going to speak today, and I had this experience that I just kind of wanted to put to you and see what you make of it, which is I remember listening to it the first time and thinking to myself and coming away from it with this experience that 
it was a it was a reflection on your identity and the phenomenon of nostalgia and not wanting that to change um which is lovely and i think still in the piece but the thing that i clocked this time listening to it literally 10 years later is that it it's really a story about the nature of possession and the idea that people reach the conclusion that they can own things and own experiences when in fact none of us own anything that that seems to be like to me the tension in in the middle of it and it was so powerful to me to think you know this is one of the if i'm not mistaken one of the earliest stories you did this is even before you worked at reply all yeah it's the first it's like i think the first sort of aside from like a short on the media piece it's the first story i ever did what do you remember from working on that piece and what do you feel like it taught you about the nature because to me it, it really puts its finger on this idea we've been talking about in reply all stories say where it it starts out being about one thing but it's actually about this much bigger existential question um i guess it's two questions one is would you agree with my characterization of it and two does it loom large in the way that you have uh become an audio storyteller since uh Hmm. I agree with your assessment of it. I have this fantasy that that Mr. Hayden, should he ever pass away, which I know he eventually will, like I have this fantasy that he will will me Hayun and not be able to ship it to uh-huh. my house. Uh-huh. I know yeah. that's not going to happen, <laughs> but that's like my dream. Uh, uh-huh. Uh-huh. And uh, um, like I, I like I do want to possess it in the same way that like he wanted to possess it and have it be all his own. Um, and how did it inform the way that I tell stories? Well, I will say that the whole beginning of the episode with the dramatization of of going to Heyoon did not exist in most drafts of it up until not long before it went out. And I think that was Sam Greenspan's innovation. And uh, I was very resistant to it at first. Um, but the fact that they went ahead and did it made me realize that like it just made me realize that like there are a lot of different ways to tell a story (laughs) there are a lot of ways to tell a story that aren't quite so circumscribed as the one that i had in my head and Mm -hmm. um maybe i should be open to that and i do think that like some of the best reply all stories are the ones where we really went off the map um the one where the Roma, the where ninety nine percent invisible is not working in the Mazda, and then we made all those fake podcasts. That was uh, that was <laughs> that was I think Tim Howard or Damiano's idea, um, but like I never would have thought of that. Such a great idea to just make a bunch of bespoke podcasts. It was very fun. Yeah, I'm very tempted to read Heyoon in light of everything we've been talking about. Is kind of like an ur text for your like quest as a storyteller in terms of wanting these answers is like this sense that if you can like possess the answer, things will make sense, but like you can't ever actually get all the answers. So you have to go out and look for the next one. Yeah, basically. I mean, basically I'm always hungry for them. Um, and like that feeling never goes away. It is a gas tank that needs to be perpetually refilled. So, yeah. Well, speaking as a fan, I, Eagerly look forward to whatever shape that takes, and I'll be hanging out in the cool dude zone in the Thank meantime. you so much, man. I really appreciate that. The Midnight Disease is hosted, produced, mixed, and edited by me, Sam Dingman. My thanks to Alex Goldman for joining me on the show this week. Remember to check out all of his current projects, The Cool Dude Zone, on Substack, Western Kabuki, the podcast wherever you are listening to this, and Slow Fawns, the synthesizer music that scratches the itch. Links to all of it in the show notes for this episode. A reminder that our show art is by M.K. Cummins, and 
that you can reach me via email at midnight at w-a-l-t dot f-m. We'll be back on Friday with a brand new Friday show and next week with another great conversation. Until then, thank you for letting your madness ride with mine. I'll talk to you on Friday, and until then, keep driving. You're listening to WALT. Homegrown. Homemade radio.